Point Church. How's everybody doing today? All right, let's do it. If you have your Bible, go ahead, take it out, open it up, head over to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to jump around a little bit today. Um, we're going to have probably three different passages that we're going to be looking at. I'm actually going to refer to a lot of other verses. If you're new today, normally we take one passage and sort of walk through that. But based on our topic and our series, I felt the need to jump around a little bit. Speaking of being new, if you are a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Houston Northwest. And uh, we would love to let you know about our church. Our church's mission and vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. So if you would like to see Houston become more like heaven and less like hell. And if you would like to become more like Jesus, then we would love for you to join us in that journey and in that vision. Um, easy way to let us know is just to grab one of these cards that says connect. And at the end of the service, whenever the offering basket comes by, just drop that in there and uh, we'll follow up with you and answer any questions that you might have. Um, if you're online, there'll be a link that'll be dropped in the chat. Or if you prefer a digital version, you're here in the room, look for a QR code on the back of one of the seats, scan it with your phone, and it'll take you right to a digital version of that card. Um, speaking of new folks, uh, a couple of things I want to let you know about before we uh, jump in today. Um, you may have gathered our church is, is growing right now. Great things are happening here. We're so glad to have so many new folks, and, and we're glad that the Lord is just choosing to bless our church. We want to make sure that as new people come in, that we are making room for them and doing that in a way that serves them so that they don't have any added difficulties. It's always kind of weird and hard whenever you start going to a new church. And so we want to just do those little things that we can to help serve those who are new here. So here's a couple of things that you can help us out with if you would be willing to do so. Number one, if you are able to and you can, would you mind parking a little bit further away? So one place you can park is the YMCA lot. Uh, the Y doesn't open until noon, and so they give us permission to use their parking lots. So if you're willing to park <clears throat> in one of their lots, uh, that would help free up a space. Or you can park by the student building or the lodge, which is kind of on the edge of our back parking lot. If you don't know where that is, just a quick jaunt around the parking lot in your car, you'll see it. If you park down there, that just opens up parking spaces closer to the entrances, closer to the building. We'd really appreciate if you do that. Second thing is just to help serve. Um, we need help pretty much everywhere on campus. As more people come in, which we're super excited about, there's just greater need. And uh, we want to make sure that as people come, they always have a, a great experience. We don't want anybody to not hear the good news that God has for them because we didn't do our jobs, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so just to give you an example, this is just one example. Last Sunday, we had more kids in our kids' ministry than we had on Easter Sunday. Right, which is awesome, right? Yeah, it's great. Should clap for it. Yeah, we, they're glad you're clapping. They want you more, though, to sign up and help, right? Okay. Um, there were 45 two-year-olds last week, you guys. Like, Lord of the Flies is a nonfiction documentary happening in the two-year-old classroom right now. If, uh, if you'll just head over there, they would love to show you that um, as well. So seriously, in all seriousness, there's great things happening. We're praising God for it, uh, but we would love it if you would be willing to help out. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. And there's a serve card in your uh, seat pocket. Grab that, fill that out, drop it in the offering basket as well. We need, we need help all over. Um, one more thing I want to let you know about. Um, we are very honored every year to get to partner with the Tim Tebow Foundation to host an event that's a nationwide event called Night to Shine. And Night to Shine is a prom for people with special needs 
here in our community. We partner with another church in our area called Big House Church, one of the church plants that we helped start through the Houston Church Planning Network. And um, we need 200 volunteers to pull this off. It's going to be an incredible night. It is amazing. In this room, um, we'll have uh, lots of people dancing and celebrating, and it is so special. And I hope that you'll sign up to help. It's on February the 10th. Uh, just get on the website, hnw.org slash NTS, that stands for Night to Shine. It'll take you straight to actually the Big House Church website uh, where you can sign up to help. But we need a lot of volunteers and, and hope that you'll help us with that as we uh, serve those families in our community. Okay, I know there's a lot of announcements. Appreciate your patience there. Um, as we're about to jump into the Bible in Matthew chapter 5, let me just give a, a brief introduction to the Bible for those of us who may be new to the Bible. Uh, the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament gives us a record of God's chosen people, Israel, and tells us about their need for a rescuer, for a redeemer. Uh, they use the word Messiah. And they spend the entire Old Testament waiting for this Messiah, rescuer, redeemer to show up because they're regularly in trouble and, and sort of crying out, looking for a political leader or a military leader. Then in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, we find out who this rescuer, redeemer, Messiah is. And we find out that his name is Jesus. And that Jesus is not a military ruler, that he is not a, a political leader, but that Jesus is instead God's very son, God in flesh. And then Jesus comes and lives the sinless human life, dies a sacrificial death on a cross, and conquers death three days later, comes back from the dead. All of his believers who were days earlier scared to death are now floored, super fired up. They start telling everyone, we found the Messiah. And you can have eternal life and forgiveness if you place your faith in Jesus and have this new way to live. They, they called it the kingdom of God. So today, those of us in the room who have placed their faith in Jesus and are living that way, we are the spiritual inheritors of that very message that, we, uh, that was proclaimed in the Bible by the disciples 2,000 years ago. And we continue to proclaim it today. And if you have yet to say yes to Jesus, we would love it if you would join in and say yes to him today. Now, one of the first followers of Jesus was a guy named Matthew. And Matthew wrote a biography of Jesus. And in that, he recorded uh, one of Jesus' uh, greatest teachings, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at one verse in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, in verse 9. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to jump in and kind of see what that has to do with us in our lives today. So would you join me as we, as we pray? Lord, I know that so many of us have come here today just needing a word from you. We've got junk happening in our lives. Things are hard. But Father, some of us are already believers, and we just need you to, to help us right now. Others of us, we're in a tight spot, and we showed up here today just hoping that we would hear something that would help. And so, Father, I pray that through the words that come out of my mouth, you would minister to people and draw them to you. Lord, let Jesus be magnified today. And I pray this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. So, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, I fought with my younger brother all the time. 
Like, I mean, you know, we made WWF look like child's play. You know, we were at each other all the time, throwing fists, throwing elbows. And I mean, my mom had to try and get creative on ways to keep the peace around the house. So the kind of standard issue edict was you go to your room, you go to your room. It's sort of like in the boxing match, you know, where they send you to your respective corners, that kind of a thing. But at some point, I don't know if my mom heard about this from a friend or if it was just birthed in her evil heart, but she came up with this devious plan. And whenever we were really, really at each other's throats, she would have us both sit down on the couch next to each other and then make us hug. I don't know if anybody else's parents ever did this. I mean, I totally stole it, using it on my kids all the time whenever they were little. Thought it was great. And I'm mentioning that to you today because I think that really those two strategies, sending to your respective corners and hugging, are really illustrative whenever it comes to the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. You know, peacekeeping, the UN does that, right? They send soldiers into a place where a ceasefire or a truce has already been declared. So it basically is like, we don't really like each other, but let's just stop shooting at each other, okay? That's what peacekeeping is. But peacemaking is someone who enters into a place and says, nobody likes anybody here, but we're not leaving until this is gone, not only from a place where we don't just stop shooting, but now we actually have created an environment where thriving can happen, where relationships flourish. And there was something weird whenever my brother and I would hug each other. At first, I don't know if you were like this, but like we would try to hurt each other. Like, oh yeah, we'll hug, you know, as hard as we could, try to break their ribs. But then the longer that it went on, the sillier that it felt. And then like we were laughing. And the next thing you know, it was like, why were we even fighting in the first place when we went on? I think that right now, a lot of us in this room, like we hear that story, we're like, well, that's cute and all with kids. But like the people in my life, in my home, a hug ain't gonna fix it. And we've got real things, real problems, maybe with our kids, maybe with our spouse, maybe with extended family. Maybe, we've, maybe we, we live by ourselves and your home, as Kirk talked about last week, are the people kind of in your immediate relational circle and for whatever reason, things are just really, really tough. And you need to somehow be the arbiter, the one who creates peace, but you're not really certain how to go about that. And Jesus says, it's blessed to be a peacemaker. How do we do that? How do we lean in? So I want to look at a couple of passages today. Now, we could go through the Bible, and we could see passage after passage that talks about what it means to be someone who pursues peace, who builds peace. I'm just going to pick two today. And I just want us to examine what it is that God is after whenever he says that we should pursue and try to be a peacemaker rather than simply a peacekeeper. So, The first passage I'm going to look at is in Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bible, head on over there with me. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look at verse 14 through 17. And I want us to think about this first passage in light of um, what it means for us to actively be someone who is attempting to construct peace. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person 
like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Now, I want us to use this passage first, because I want us to start with the person, maybe here in the room, who is the offender. Like, if you are in a situation right now where you know you need to help cultivate peace, you need to be actively making peace, you might look at yourself and go, I'm the one who jacked this thing up. Like, you would say it openly. Now, no one likes to be that person. No one likes to admit that they're that person. But we've all been there, right? And so, if you're the offender, I want us to just look at Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 17. I want us to just start with the first word there. You know, it says, pursue peace. Pursue peace. For me, whenever I hear the word pursue, I'm just reminded of like a high-speed car chase, you know, like cops chasing somebody down. And, and what I want you to hear, I think that's a great mental image because I think that God wants us to see that peace is not something that naturally comes to us. Like you have to chase it down. You have to be the one to say, I want peace no matter what, so I am going to run after it. Now, why? Why do you have to have that? Well, you go to the end of that verse. It says, if you, if you don't have peace, what happens? You won't see the Lord. You won't see the Lord. Now, I, I want to just begin by letting you know I am not someone with a green thumb. Like, I want to be so badly. I kill most things that I plant. Not everything. I, I, I have some trees that have made it to this point. But most of the things that I plant don't make it. But I was so fired up this year because I actually planted some things last spring and they had survived. And I was like super proud. And then like that freeze came. And does anybody else's flower bed look kind of like this right now? I mean, like you just look at it, you're like, yep, that's, that's the way it looks. Right? I mean, everything that I planted, it was just days, you know, like before the freeze, I was feeling probably an unhealthy amount of pride. You know, I did it. And I moved to Houston so I wouldn't have to worry about freezes. But, you know, there it is, right? And basically everything is turned brown. Now, this is what I want you to hear. Plants need a certain set of circumstances to be able to survive. And in the same way, your relationship with the Lord, listen to me, it doesn't die because of the things that you choose to do, but it can be affected. And whenever you choose, whenever you choose, to allow relational conflict to continue, this verse is just a stark reminder to me that the Bible is insistent that we pursue peace with one another because somehow, oddly enough, the way that we treat other people directly affects the way that God moves in our lives. We don't like that, right? We want to be able to just like cut people off, throw them away, walk away. But when you do that, it affects your spiritual walk. I'm reminded, Peter, there's a verse in Peter that talks about the fact that husbands, the way that you treat your wives affects your prayer life. Hello. All through the scripture, we are reminded that whenever we do not seek reconciliation with others, it messes with the way that the spirit moves. Like, Back to that verse in 1 Thessalonians about the spirit being quenched. Somehow, the spirit can be dampened in whenever we introduce sin into our lives, but also whenever we don't pursue peace with other people. 
And if you're the offender in a certain relationship, I want you to hear you need to pursue this because if you don't, it'll dampen your walk with God. And so I want to talk about that. If you go to the very end of the, those few verses that we read, it talks about Esau missing his moment for repentance. And really repentance is the thing that I want us to talk about if you are the offender. Because repentance is the thing that you need and that you have to start with if you are going to repair whatever relationship is in your life. You need to repent. Now, sometimes we hear that, you know, like repent for the end is near. We don't even know what that means. What does repentance mean? Repentance simply means turning around and going the other way. Really, in biblical terms, it means turning towards Jesus and doing what Jesus would have you do. And I want to talk just briefly, if you are the offender, according to the scripture, according to the Bible, what is biblical repentance? What does it mean to, to biblically repent whenever you have hurt someone? So the first thing in biblical repentance is confession. Now, nobody likes confessing. Nobody wants to start out by saying, yeah, I did this thing that was wrong. But until you confess, you will not be able to repair the relationship. And if you don't repair the relationship, you can't have the walk with God that you want. Now, this is important. In today's world, a lot of us hedge our bets, so to speak, whenever it comes to confession, because we live in a moment culturally where we're very consumed with trauma and past experiences and you know, psychological reasons for the way that we behave. And I want to be clear, that's good and that's healthy. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But there can come a point where we say something like, well, I act that way because this thing happened to me. Instead of moving to the, the space of confession, confession may acknowledge that these things happen, but we still own our behavior. Do you see the difference? Yeah, if you do not own your behavior, you are not confessing. Like saying, well, I'm like that because this thing happened to me, that's nice, but that's not confession. Confession is, I messed up. And it's having enough self-reflection to look inward and to say, these things may have happened to me and my instinctive response may be a pattern of behavior that's unhealthy, but that's not confession. Confession is saying, even though that's the case, I should know better and I shouldn't have done what I did. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? Okay, there we go. All right, you, you're allowed to talk if you want to. Just go on back. There you go. So I want you to think about the fact that if we don't own our behaviors, then we cannot repent because broken behaviors rupture relationships. And until you confess, you can't begin to address the broken behavior. I love repentance and hate repentance because it starts with inward reflection and seeing where we individually, I, am broken. I love this quote from Teddy Roosevelt. If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. I mean, it's great. If you're not into like that historical stuff and you would just rather listen to Taylor Swift, she said in Antihero, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. 
Either way works, whatever floats your boat, but this is what I want you to hear. Confession is good for the soul because confession requires us to do inward reflection and identify our own brokenness. We cannot heal until we see where we are sick. James chapter five, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So we confess. Secondly, after we confess, the next thing we we need to do is apologize. In Matthew chapter five, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Here is a textbook apology. I am so sorry, I did not mean to hurt you, I should not have done X, whatever that is, right? Apologies do not include excuses. I love the quote from Benjamin Franklin, never ruin an apology with an excuse. P.S., I'm sorry you felt that way is not an apology. Now, why don't we like to apologize? We don't like to apologize Because whenever I ask someone's forgiveness, whenever I apologize, whenever I confess my wrongdoing, not only to myself, but to someone else, whenever I apologize, I am relinquishing the position of power within the relationship. And I am placing myself in a position where I need someone to demonstrate mercy to me. Most of us don't like to relinquish power. But to admit I have had a hand in this, and I'm sorry, is huge. Now, in this Hebrews passage, which, by the way, we could spend hours on just this Hebrews passage, the writer of Hebrews makes reference to the root of bitterness. And there's this idea that whenever you don't repent, whenever you don't confess, whenever you don't apologize, whenever you don't do those things, this thing called the root of bitterness comes up And it begins to burrow its way deeper and deeper into the heart of the one who has been offended to a point where relational repair becomes more difficult with every passing day, right? It's pretty easy to pull up a dandelion by its roots. It's not so easy to take up a tree stump. And I want you to hear me. The the longer you take to confess... The longer you take to apologize, the longer that that root of bitterness grows into that relationship and into the person who has been offended, into his or her heart, to a point where he or she really begins to lose any desire to see relational reconciliation take place. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is a beautiful story, or beautiful verse rather, about the power of the gospel. It says this, For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that. We talk about that. Yes, no condemnation. But I want you to hear this. You don't have any condemnation in grace. But if you refuse to confess and apologize, you will have a consequence. Like God has forgiven you, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to face the consequences of your actions. This isn't about you being separated from God in eternity. This is the fact that as this relationship gets more and more broken, it affects the way that you're able to approach the Lord in prayer and allow the Spirit to move through your life as a conduit. 
So I want us to recognize that we've got to be quick, not only to confess, but also to apologize. Third, after we apologize, this is really the true definition of repentance. We have to then change our behavior or make things right. I don't know if you've ever had someone that you you had to look at them and say, hey, I'm really sorry, Um, I shouldn't have done that. What can I do to make it right? That's like the most nerve-wracking question of all time because you just wonder, what are they going to say? I mean, you know, typically adults have more devious ideas than hugging your brother for an extended amount of time. What do I need to do to make things right? But just in biblical repentance, it's this idea that you don't keep doing the thing that you've been doing. You, you change your behavior. You go the other way. You, you do something else. And whenever you pursue peace, you come to a moment where you say, I'm ready to change. This is the thing that I've noticed. There's a type of person who will confess that I did this wrong. They'll even apologize but then that moment where it comes to changing behavior or making things right, they, they almost for some reason want to punt on that. And they almost want to push that back on the offended party. You know, you just take control, do whatever you want to do, and, and that'll be fine. But that doesn't work. The way that things are made right is that you do the hard work. And you dive in there to help repair things. So at verse 17, we, we saw this example of Esau And basically, we read that he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. It's this idea, as long as you have another breath, it's not too late with you and the Lord, but with people, you can reach a moment where they are just done. I mean, they've just been hurt too many times. The hurt has gone so deep that their heart has become so hard that reconciliation and restoration just seems impossible. And what I want you to hear is, is if you're in this room and you're, you've got a situation that's coming to mind right now, could I exhort you, run, pursue peace, because you can have a day when it's too late and the relationship is just completely broken. And that's certainly not what the Lord wants. Okay. So this is where we're going to start with the offender. But let's go to another passage and talk about the offended. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Now, in Romans 12, verse 17, we get a passage that is is, is different from what Hebrews was about. Hebrews was really about the one who is offended, repenting. This is for the one who has the offendee. They've been hurt. Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable In everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So what do you do if you're the one who has been offended against? Well, Romans 12 tells you. You know, I grew up in Texas, and so kind of Western heritage and culture has always been something that's kind of fascinated my imagination. 
And, you know, I, I think I was in college whenever the film Tombstone came out. I don't know how many people here have ever seen that, but, you know, kind of got fascinated with the story of Wyatt Earp, this legendary lawman. And whenever he finished his tenure at Dodge City, the people of Dodge City, Kansas, gave him a thank you gift. And the thank you gift they gave him, I thought was sort of ironic in talking about today's sermon of being a peacemaker. They gave him a Colt revolver. And the Colt revolver has a plaque of brass that's embossed, or engraved rather, on the handle of the revolver that says, the peacemaker. And I mention this because whenever we get to a moment where someone has offended us, I believe that instinctively, most of us think of making peace in the same way that the people of Dodge City thought about making peace. We just got to wipe out the bad guys. I right, just get rid of them cut them off, be done. The way that most of us think about making peace is actually by making vengeance, but those of us who are Christians have to grapple with passages like Romans chapter 12 that says that the way that you make peace is not through hurting, but instead through serving. I just want you to look at this. This this verse just is bananas to me. Do not avenge yourselves, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. Now we can maybe go, okay, well it's not about violence, okay, fine. But then skip down to verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Like the picture that that Paul gives here is the person that you are diametrically opposed with, your job is to bless them excessively. Now, why do we do that? Now, whenever I was a kid and I read this verse, you know, and like I would hear adults quote this, well, you know, just go serve them, pour some coals on their head. It was like, we're going to serve them to make them feel guilty, right? I'll show them, (laughs) right? But that doesn't really fit with the rest of that passage, does it? No, there's a different goal here. Um, Kenneth Bailey, who I think is probably one of the greatest scholars of uh, Middle Eastern culture, has explained this passage to me in a way that I finally understood it. He talked about the fact that in the Bedouin culture, which is the culture of the Bible, uh, lots of folks would live in tents. And in those tents in which they would live, they would often have a fire right in the center of the tent. And the peak of the tent would have a hole Uh, Because it was in the desert, so rain wasn't common, so the smoke could escape from the tent. And so the fire was essential because you needed the fire to cook and you needed the fire to keep warm because in the desert at night, often it it would get cool. And Bailey explains that for a variety of reasons, sometimes the fire in the Bedouin tent would go out. And what do you do whenever your fire goes out? Well, they had these giant metal plates, sort of, Um, look like a a bowl almost, and they would carry them to their neighbor's tent, and they would then ask for coals from their fire so that they could go back to their tent and relight their fire. And how would they carry it? On their head. So whenever you read this passage, whenever you're feeding your enemy who's hungry and and giving your enemy something to drink and you're heaping coals on his or her head, you're not harming them. What are you doing? The goal of your serving your enemy is so that your service might actually stoke the fires of repentance in his or her heart. 
You're trying to relight their fire for the Lord. You know, this is putting flowers in the barrels of guns. This is straight up choosing to love and to blatantly serve so that the offender is confused. Why would they love me like that? Why would they serve me like that? Your job is to serve the offender to the point that they know that Christ has done real work inside of your heart. And it's not to make them feel guilty. It's not to shame them. It is so that they will actually be drawn to repentance. So for those of us in this room who've been hurt, the goal is not that we serve in such a way that that we hurt ourselves, but that we serve so that the one who has been offending us will be moved to a point of repentance. Now, I say all of this because I think that it's important for us to recognize that both the offender and the offended have hard work to do. I mean, neither of these things sound easy or fun. And if you're here in this room and you're not a believer, you might be saying, well, why in the world would anyone do this? And what I want you to recognize is that the only way that Christians are able to do this is because we have been filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And the way that we've been filled with the Spirit of Jesus is because he has changed us. We've, we've entered into a relationship with him, and the Bible tells that he's, he's indwelling in us. He's changed us. You see, the only way that we're able to do these things is because we begin to pattern our lives after the cross of Christ. Peace only comes by the cross. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and many folks will participate in a day of service or will take a moment to reflect on the legacy of Dr. King and the work that he did along with others through the civil rights movement. Sometimes on Martin Luther King Day, I'll spend time listening to some of his sermons or I'll spend some time reading some of his sermons. Recently, I was reading some of his work and I came across a quote that actually ties into today's sermon. And his context was different. He was talking about the racial situation in our nation at that particular moment. But I think it really fits with today. This is what he said. True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. And as I was thinking about peacemaking, I was thinking about the fact that the cross, the cross of Christ is the perfect illustration of Dr. King's quote. It is the absence of tension, but yet also the presence of justice. Because at the cross, all of the tension between humanity and God disappeared. The Bible is clear that through our rebellion, through our sinfulness, that we had become enemies with God, that we were on the outs with God, that we were destined to be separated from him for eternity. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that tension was relieved and a bridge was built. But at the same time, justice is at the cross because a holy God needs to have the penalty for sin satisfied. Consequently, it was satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. The cross is the perfect example of peace because it is where tension erodes and justice is satisfied. Now, I mention that because when we think about how to make peace, 
it will be difficult for any of us to do the things that we've heard. If we are the offender, we will not naturally want to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness and confess and change our behavior. Why would we do that? If we are a Christian, we would do it because Jesus humbled himself to a cross to make peace. If we are the offended, the offendee, why would we choose to serve the one who has hurt us so deeply? Because our God modeled such love by becoming flesh and hanging on a cross and serving us by his death when we deserved none of it. See, the cross becomes the model for forgiveness. The cross becomes the model for peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Many of us, many of us are not experiencing peace in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships, because whenever there has been a conflict, we choose the way of the cult revolver rather than the way of the cross. God wants to use the cross as the model for redemption and forgiveness and peacemaking. The cross is God's kindness to us. As we continue to rebel against God, he chose to show us kindness. I just, I don't know if, if you guys ever have these moments, but this weekend, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was just waking up to the incredible fact that God showed kindness to us through the cross of Jesus. Like just how kind he was that he did not want to relegate us to judgment, but God said, I will do whatever it takes so that I can have you in my family forever. I mean, that's what he wanted. And he said, okay, I will do whatever it takes. I will humble myself and I will serve those who have offended me and I will do so by becoming flesh and allowing myself to be hung on a tree in the most humiliating of fashions, in the most excruciating of pain. God did that because God wanted you to see this is the length to which I will go to make peace with those whom I love. Now, whenever we have that, yeah. Whenever we have that, I began to just recognize that the cross of Christ was God's way of heaping coals onto our head to fire the flame of faith back up. That's what he was doing. He was saying, let me show you how much I love you. I will do this so that you can again have the fire of faith burning hotly in your lives. I want you to have it to show you God is not angry with you. God loves you and wants to bring you in. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had people in my life who have humbled themselves and have shown me kindness and have apologized or have received my apologies when I've done something wrong. And what I've recognized is that that kindness is what it takes to draw me back into relationship. And the Bible says the same thing, that God's kindness is there. Romans 2 verse 4 so that we would be brought back. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
God did this because he's trying to say, this is how much I love you. I want you so badly to be in my family. I want you so badly to spend eternity with me. I will do whatever it takes to bridge any conflict, to bring peace between you and me, if only you will receive it. And here's the thing that I've noticed over the years. Some of us are just so stubborn. I mean, some of us, someone will humble themselves, they will, for, they, will, they will confess, they will apologize, they will promise to change, and we will hold it over their heads and say, no way. And it's the same with the cross. Some of us have been coming to church for decades just to make a family member happy, and we will not understand that God is crying out asking us to come into the family of faith. What I want you to hear today is that the cross is not only the fuel for earthly peace, but the cross is God's begging you, please do not enter into a life apart from me. I want to be with you. That's what he wants. And so today, I just want to say to you, if you have been holding God at arm's length for a long time, you know what, I get it. I've been like that. I've had some relationships in my life that were so jacked up. But whenever finally there is a move made toward repentance and restoration and reconciliation, it's time to finally say, okay, let's do what we have to do to make this right. And I don't know if you've been angry at God, and I don't know if God has hurt you or what has happened, but the cross of Christ is God saying to you, I love you, please come to me. And I would invite you to do so today. This God wants you in his family. This God wants you for eternity. He did it because he loves you. For the rest of us, if you're already a believer, just use this as the model. If you're the offender, humble yourself in the same way that Jesus did to climb on that cross. If you're the offended, use the cross as the model to serve the one who has offended you, to demonstrate a kindness that will lead to repentance, and do it in a way that we can demonstrate that this cross changes our hearts and that the faith truly is compelling and brings you into a new way of living. Would you pray with me? God, we we love you. We thank you. God, our prayer today is that we could say yes to you. Father, I just want to pray for anybody in this room who has yet to say yes to you, that God, they would do so right now. They would just say, okay, I'm done fighting. I'm ready to, ready to, to surrender. Lord, that they would, they would believe. Father, for those in this room who maybe they're the offender or they're the offended, that they would just take their cue from you. They would take you seriously, what you've said, what you've commanded, and live by it. God, we love you. Let us model our church, our lives after what you have done through Jesus. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. So glad that you joined us online today at Houston Northwest Church, where our vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. 
If you have questions about following Jesus or would like to talk to someone about next steps in your spiritual journey, text Jesus to 281-946-6500. Connect with us throughout the week by following us on social and enjoy a great day.